Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. My name is Hunter Rue, one of the associate pastors at the Williamsburg Community Chapel, and I'm grateful that you've joined us today. This week, we begin our new series on the life of the Apostle Paul, one of the most important and intriguing figures in history and of our faith. In this first week, we will look at Paul's beginnings and see how he was transformed from a feared terrorist into a faithful evangelist for Jesus Christ. I encourage you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 7 and get ready as we learn together how to become an imitator of Paul as he imitated Jesus Christ. Well, we are going to be looking at the life of the Apostle Paul, looking at the book of Acts as our primary text. And I wanted to start out with a quotation because I know a lot of us are probably somewhat familiar with Paul. If you were to ask me, who was this guy? I'd say, well, he, he was an apostle, and he, he went to some different places, and he planted some churches, and he wrote some books of the New Testament, and, and that's all good. And yeah, that is the picture of my family with our dog. Um, and as we, as we get into this um, life of the Apostle Paul, we're going to be answering that question as we start our time together of who was this man Paul, and we'll be looking primarily at Acts chapter, uh, end of chapter 7, very beginning of chapter 8, and then chapter 9 with Paul's conversion. But as you think about Paul and your familiarity with him, I wanted to read a quotation from uh, the church that I used to serve at in Kansas. And while I was there during my second and third year there, we took like over a year to go through the life of the Apostle Paul. And we published a small group curriculum. And we had this opening quotation from the small group curriculum answering the question, who was Paul? Was he the true founder of Christianity as the ABC documentaries attest? Or was he a woman-hating chauvinist, as modern feminism would have you believe? Or was he an anti-Semite who, who painted all Jews as legalists, according to modern Judaism? Wayne Meeks of Yale University is correct when he writes that next to Jesus, Paul is the most intriguing figure in the first century. But Paul is also a man for all centuries. You may not know it. But next to Jesus, no biblical person has had a greater influence on your life. You'll learn that Paul was a brilliant scholar, a murderous inquisitor, a passionate apostle, and the world's greatest evangelist. What a guy. I'd like to get to know him, and I'd like for us to get to know him together. He wrote 13 books of the New Testament. And his story is told primarily to us in the book of Acts, where we will be spending the majority of our time this spring. We're going to navigate this journey together and look at it as a series of journeys. We'll be looking at Paul's life as one of many journeys, including his missionary journeys, or as Wes has said to me, could be considered his church planting journeys. That's right. As well as his final journey as he journeyed to Rome to the end of his life. Now, I want us to have some scripture memory opportunities, guys, because I, I realize that's not a discipline that we have necessarily embraced um, during our, our last semester, but I want us to, to be memorizing some scripture together. And it's not going to be difficult. Like, we can do this, and I think that it's, it's helpful for our discipleship to memorize scripture. It's a discipline that's, that's very good. So the, um, 
The scriptures that I want us to remember are as follows. 1 Corinthians 11.1. Paul writes, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let's say that together. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 11.1. Another verse that was, in in my mind, a defining verse that Paul lived out each and every day is Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's say that together. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul's perspective on wanting to imitate Jesus was with the purpose that people might be saved. So in other words, how he lived his life, he wanted to live his life in such a way as Christ lived his life so that people would come into a knowledge and salvation of the living Christ. And that's why he says to the Corinthians, imitate me in the same way I've imitating Christ. And then Paul's perspective was an eternal one in Philippians. For me to live is Christ. Everything about what I do is to be wrapped up in the person of Jesus and who I am in Jesus and who he is in me. But to die and to be in his presence, that's also gain for me as well. So Paul had an eternal perspective. And I want to keep bringing us back to those verses throughout our session together. And here's the big idea. Paul modeled a life of, sur- of sur- a surrendered life to Jesus Christ for us to follow. Paul modeled a life surrendered to Jesus Christ for us to follow. So as we look at Paul's life, we're looking at how he lived for Christ. And so we should do the same. So as we get into our text for today, we have some maps. I I don't want to disappoint you. I do have some maps. Uh, This map over here shows the uh, ancient Israel or Palestine. And Jerusalem is where our action starts. It's in the south part of the country. But we also will move to the north part of the country and even north outside of Israel to the country of Syria to a city of Damascus. And and then also you can see Israel, Palestine's down here. Damascus is to the north, about 135 miles. And then Tarsus is a city that's going to get mentioned as well as we learn about Paul's background, even farther north outside of Israel, very close to Asia Minor and Macedonia. So... With those maps in mind in our context, we have, um, just for context of what we'll read, we have Stephen, who's going to be the first martyr of the Christian church. Only the Lord knows the souls and the blood spilled over these 2,000 years of those who have called Christ their Savior and who have been murdered and martyred for that. But Stephen was the first. And we'll look at the tail end of that. We'll also see Saul, who that is the birth name of Paul. That is his given Hebrew name. And in Hebrew, it means asked for or questioned. And then we'll see that this takes place around 33, 34 AD, very shortly after the resurrection of crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. The church is in its incipient stages, and people are coming to understand the gospel, and it is spreading. And Stephen finds himself in the midst of the crosshairs as the first martyr. So... We'll look at that in just a moment. I will read, um, yes, I will read to us from Acts chapter 7, verse 58, and then on through chapter 8, verse 3. And I'm not going to have these verses on the screen. I'm just encouraging you guys to have your own copy of the Bible to bring that with you each and every week, as well as to maybe open up your, your smartphone or your tablet to access the Word of God. Um, So what we read in Acts 7.58, 
This is talking about Stephen now, the first martyr, who's just shared with the Jewish leaders about Jesus and has kind of offended them because of the words that he has shared, uh, saying that you have crucified the Messiah. And so as a result of this, they, they get riled up and they stone him. And so uh, verse thir- uh, 58 reads, Then they cast him, that is Stephen, out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So here in Acts 7.58 is the very first mention that we get of this incredibly important historic figure, Paul, who at the time was named Saul. And he's a young man. So some believe that Saul, Paul, was maybe about the same age as Jesus, maybe born about the same time as Jesus. So he's maybe in his early 30s at this time. And they laid their cloaks at his feet so that they could be freed to throw stones at Stephen to murder him. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, which is a euphemism for death. Chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged men off. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So we see here Saul beginning his life really as a terrorist. And that would be his reputation for the very beginning of the church. I don't know that Saul, I I don't know how long he spent in this phase of his life terrorizing the church. It might have only been a short time, but it was terrible enough that his reputation preceded him, as we'll see when we read about his conversion in Acts chapter 9. But he approved of the execution of Stephen. That means to uh, be pleased together with the murder of this faithful Christian man. And then in verse 3, he ravaged the church. That means he was seeking to destroy this movement of God that was just beginning. And so maybe the question is, why would this man be so hell-bent on destroying this movement? What about this was upsetting to him? Well, from his background, which he writes about himself, we find the following facts about Paul's life. We find that he was of, born into the tribe of Benjamin, according to Philippians 3. Now, the tribe of Benjamin historically was one of the fiercest tribes, tribes that would, you would want to be your warriors and your fighters. So Paul came from a lineage of those who were fierce and zealous for God's law and God's truth. We also find that he was born as a Roman citizen in the city of Tarsus in the region of Cilicia, which is to the north. This means that Paul had privilege. He was born a Roman citizen. He didn't have to purchase his citizenship. It was part of who he was. So he was coming from privilege. Uh, just a note on, uh, on his name and going thinking back to the tribe of Benjamin. There was another Saul in the Bible who was also from the tribe of Benjamin. And that was King Saul, the very first king of the nation of Israel. And so you almost get in your mind that that Saul, who we come to know as Paul, from the tribe of Benjamin, wanted to, to live out in a worthy way his name, 
even though the king Saul was not able to do so, but he came from the same tribe with the same name, and he was born a Roman citizen. He was also educated in the Ivy League of rabbinical schools under the feet and teaching of Gamaliel, a well-known rabbi in the city of Jerusalem. And he was a member of the Pharisee party. And as we know, Jesus and the Pharisees did not have a good relationship. And that probably explains largely why Paul, Saul, was bent on destroying the movement that began through Jesus and his followers. We think about the horrors of the Holocaust and how one man was determined to wipe out a group of people. Saul was in the same mindset. He would have them arrested. He would approve of their beatings. He would approve of their killings. And that is how he enters his life in encountering the church. (laughs) Not a great start, which is so shocking and surprising that he would become the man that God made him to be. Now, in Paul's mind, just to give him some credit, guys, he was doing what he thought was the right thing. He was following in the footsteps of faithful prophets of the Old Testament who sought to purge idolatry from the people of God and to get them to follow God's law and God's ways. In Saul's mind, that was all he was doing. But his zeal was misguided because he did not know the truth. That then leads to the next portion which is the real main portion of our teaching for this morning, which is Saul's conversion from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Now, again, we have a map here. So you see Jerusalem down here, Damascus, about uh, 135 miles to the north. So this is a six-day journey. Six days. Think of how the gospel had already spread that, that far in a, sh- a short period of time. And so Saul is determined to get letters of approval from the high priest, who was probably Caiaphas at this time, to get letters of approval to go and hunt down those who had been dispersed from Jerusalem. This was his mission each and every day. And the king of Damascus at this time, uh, the king of Syria, was willing to help Paul with this and uh, it's interesting, you'll, you'll read and we'll read about a street called Straight, which is a very specific detail here in the text in Acts chapter 9. But what's interesting is that the Straight Street is still a street in Damascus. I don't know if anyone's been there before, but it is still one of the major east-west thoroughfares in the city of modern-day Damascus today. And something extraordinary happened on the way as Paul was going from Jerusalem to Damascus, is that he encountered the living Christ. And his life was changed in a way that would change the world. One of uh, my professors, Timothy J. Ralston, wrote, without question, the story of Saul's conversion is one of the most important events, if not the most important event that Luke records in the book of Acts. And maybe, just maybe, the most important event in the history of second only to what Christ did on the cross in his resurrection for our faith. One of my favorite painters, an Italian painter, Caravaggio, paints a great um, portrayal of the conversion of St. Paul. And it shows Paul's horse. 
and Paul has literally fallen off, and his eyes appear to be open, but he, he, you can see that he's been blinded. And we'll read about that in the text. So let's pick up Acts chapter 9 and read through and take away some principles that apply to us as we follow Christ as well. So reading in Acts chapter 9, starting verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, again, probably Caiaphas, and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is, those who were followers of Jesus, possibly looking back to Jesus' words of, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the the first time that this word is used to describe the Christian faith, the way. If If he found any belonging to the way, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Paul records in Acts chapter 26, the brightness of this light to him at the moment that this happened was brighter than the sun. But it wasn't the sun. It was the glorified Christ appearing to Saul. Verse 4, and falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Which is interesting, and we'll unpack that in a moment. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who are traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. It sort of reminds me of Isaiah chapter 6. God saying, who will go for us and whom shall we send? And Isaiah says, here am I, Lord. Here I am. Send me. Ananias, here I am, Lord. He might not have been very excited about what God was going to ask him to do. Because here's what happens next. And the Lord uh, said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And as and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. That's a pretty dynamic, pretty miraculous, pretty incredible account of life transformation of Paul on the Damascus road and Ananias responding faithfully to a very difficult ask on the part of God. 
So what can we learn as we look at this life? Again, we want to follow Paul as he followed Christ. So what can we learn for our lives as we follow Paul in following Christ in effect? There are three principles I suggest for this morning. And the first is that Jesus is sovereign over the salvation of his people. Jesus is sovereign over the salvation of his people. As I was looking at this text, one of the practices I try to put in place when I read and study the scriptures, and I encourage you to do it as well, is to mark in your Bible, actually take a pen or a pencil or a highlighter and mark words that are repeated. I know some people are of the perspective, I can never mark in my Bible. If you cannot write in your Bible, then buy another one that you can. Because it's essential, I think, to studying God's word and making observations. And one of the observations that the Lord highlighted for me as I looked is that the term Lord, or kurios in the Greek, is repeated seven times in this passage. It's repeated seven times. And who is that Lord? That Lord is Jesus. We see it in verse 1. We see Lord in verse 5. We see Lord in verse 10, verse 11, verse 13, verse 15. And then again in verse 17, all referring <clears throat> to the Lord Jesus. In some cases, it's Saul and Ananias dialoguing and calling him Lord. But we also see that the name, referring to the name of Jesus, is repeated three times. As Ananias says in verse 14, your name. And then Jesus says in verse 15, he will carry my name and suffer for the sake of my name. So we see Jesus is, uh, is oozing throughout this text. Jesus is actively involved in what's going on in this life transformation of Saul to become the Apostle Paul. Now this miraculous transformation was a spiritual one. And we find that it is highlighted by this theme of blindedness. So Paul is blinded physically which is an indication how he had been blinded spiritually before this encounter with the risen Christ. Paul entered Damascus very differently than he intended to enter. He intended to enter with, with great strength and power and authority. But he had to be led by the hand in deep humility and dependence upon others. And that's because he had been changed. He had been transformed this work of Jesus Christ in transforming Paul was very, very disruptive. And yet when Paul was met with, Ananias met Paul, and he approached him, he prayed for him, and scales fell from the eyes of Saul as he was filled with the Holy Spirit and then baptized, as he was brought from death to life. And as I think about the involvement that Jesus Christ had in being present and directing and communicating in Saul's transformation, I realize that the same is true for us in our lives. Jesus is sovereign over the salvation of his people, including you and me. And I was brought to the verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, which read as follows. Powerful verses of God's grace and Jesus' sovereignty. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Isn't that beautiful? 
even when we were dead in our trespasses. See also Saul of Tarsus heading to Damascus. Even though when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen. Jesus is sovereign over the salvation of his people. What else do we learn about Jesus and ourselves and our experience in following him from this passage? And this is an interesting, very interesting, not even detail, but point of the text, which was extremely um, eye-opening for me when I first realized it. And that is that Jesus is personally present when his people are persecuted. He's personally present when his people are persecuted. And where do we get that? We get that from verses 4 and 5, where Jesus speaks to Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting not my followers? Why are you persecuting not my church? Why are you persecuting not my people? But Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, what does the text say? Me. Why are you persecuting me? And Jesus continues in verse 5. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So we see a very personal, a very intimate, a very powerful connection between Jesus and his people, his followers. And this, of course, exists outside of persecution. I don't want you to come away with thinking, oh, well, Jesus is only really personally close when I'm being persecuted. No, Jesus is personally close to you and me when we've trusted him by faith all of the time. That's why throughout Paul's writings, he writes to those who are in Christ, those who are identified with Christ by faith. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. But it's personally assuring for me to know that he is personally present when his people are persecuted. There was a quotation that I came across from another former professor, Tom Constable, which reads as follows. Jesus' question, that is the question of Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus' question made Saul begin to appreciate the intimate union that Christians enjoy with Jesus, the head of the body, the church. He was in his disciples, not just with them or ruling over them by his spirit. What they suffered, he suffered. Jesus' self-revelation totally shocked Saul, who until then had regarded Jesus as a blasphemous pretender to Israel's messianic throne. Now Saul discovered that Jesus was God, or at least with God in heaven. Yet he was in some sense also present in his followers, whom Saul was persecuting. Ah, what a beautiful truth. I'm drawn to the words of the very end of Matthew's gospel where we read Jesus saying to his disciples in Matthew 28, 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As I try to think about spiritual truth, because the Bible can be a complicated book. I think I've said before, I try to boil these truths down sometimes very simply. I say it's for my children, but it's really for me. And one of the truths and principles that I try to share with my children is uh, Jesus loves you. Jesus is with you. And Jesus is the king. And, and this, guys, hits right at that middle truth. Jesus is with us. And he certainly is with us when we are experiencing persecution and difficulty for following him 
in our lives. What a powerful and comforting truth to give us courage to live for Christ and to share him with others, no matter what the cost. Well, our third and final principle is that Jesus calls his people to difficult tasks. We see this exactly from the the example in life of Ananias. Ananias had a difficult task, didn't he? And you can sense the anxiety and the hesitation in his voice when you read after Jesus says, Ananias, here I am. Here's what I want you to do. Saul of Tarsus, I want you to go to Judas's house. I want you to find him. I want you to lay your hands on him. Whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) All right, Lord, uh, I I know what this guy has done. His reputation has preceded him, and he's, he's seeking to destroy the church. And what an amazing word of assurance that Jesus gives to Ananias in the midst of his hesitation, in the midst of his fear, in the midst of his anxiety to respond to the difficult task that God had invited him to be a part of. When he says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Jesus assures Ananias, it will be okay. Your hesitation is natural, but I've got this under control and you can trust me. And here's what Ananias does. I wonder what that moment was like in history. You feel like if we were to see a movie of this, that it would be a very intense and dramatic scene. Ananias responds faithfully, even though I'm sure along the way he's going, what's this going to look like? This man wanted to murder people like me just a few days ago. But Jesus says that I am to approach him. He approaches him, and what does he do? He lays his hands on him to pray for him. What a, what a personal a touch for someone to do to another. And he refers to him, what is the first word that he says to Saul? He calls him brother. You're in the family. I am one with you now. Ananias responded in an amazing way, an endearing moment. And Ananias's choice to surrender and to submit to this difficult task led to the opening and life transformation of another man, Saul, who would be His life would be filled with one difficult task after another as he responded faithfully to where Jesus was leading him to proclaim his name and to make the gospel known. And Jesus also offered Paul or Saul that same assurance. He told him what would happen, and he understood that a man named Ananias would come and that he would pray for him. And as a result of that, his life was changed. And I'm grateful That even though Saul knew what was coming, Saul knew that he would embrace a life of suffering, that his perspective again was for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And I'm grateful that Ananias responded to his difficult task because then Saul and Paul would respond to his difficult task because you know what, guys? You and I are the recipients and beneficiaries of their faithfulness because that gospel message that Saul was able to begin taking, eventually become Paul, and take it to every part of of Asia Minor and to the end of the earth, ending in Rome. The influence of that gospel message continued to go forth so that people took it eventually to different continents, including coming over from Europe here to the United States, so that our, our ancestors might be here, so that we might know and follow Jesus Christ today. 
And in the same way that Ananias and Saul were called to embrace difficult tasks, you and I are also called at times to embrace difficult tasks for Jesus. Just the fact that we will be called to this life of discipleship is a difficult task. We should not expect it to be comfortable and easy. And I kind of have wondered a little bit over these past 10 months if what we've all been experiencing with the pandemic and with the challenges is maybe, maybe in his sovereignty, God is inviting us by stripping away some of our comforts and our conveniences and our lackadaisicalness in our discipleship to maybe be a more resilient people to follow him and respond to the tough and difficult call that he has on our lives. I'm reminded finally of the words of 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I, I want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. <laughs> I don't want to be persecuted. But I think we see from Scripture that those two desires come in conflict with one another. So you can really only choose one. But be encouraged. As we think about what we've learned from the, the transformation of this incredible man, the Apostle Paul, be encouraged that we should be imitators. Let's say 1 Corinthians 11, 1 together. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let's say together Philippians 1, 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And again, the big idea here being Paul modeled a life surrendered to Jesus Christ for us to follow, knowing in the end that Jesus is sovereign over the salvation of his people. Jesus is personally present when his people are persecuted. And finally, Jesus calls his people to difficult tasks in following him. So as you uh, gather together for some discussion questions, you have a, as much time as you want, stay as long as you want, it's comfortable in here. First question is, have you ever thought about Christ's presence with his people, especially during persecution? How does this truth impact you? And then secondly, is there a difficult task that Jesus is calling you to carry out? Lord, I am grateful for the example of Paul. I'm grateful to know that the most unexpected person would be called on to do some of the most unexpected work for your kingdom. And that's even just what we have learned about, even with following the lives of the disciples last semester. It's you invite us to this incredible journey of discipleship. And as we think about Paul's example, may we follow him, ultimately following Jesus, being transformed to be the people that you call us to be, and taking your word, serving your people in a world that is desperately in need of the hope of the gospel. So please, may we have ears open to hear and, and share and, and pray for one another as we seek to do your will and walk in your ways today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast. Hope you will join us again next week as we continue learning lessons from the life of the Apostle Paul. For more information on the Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash men's breakfast. Have a great week.